we're saying it's when they're at their very best. For example, people will speak about uh, the basketball player, Michael Jordan. And if they refer to him when he was at his best, they'll say, peak Michael Jordan. And they'll say, no one could get close to peak Michael Jordan. And when he was up there, and he was just the best. And pe- speaking about people being at their peak, I think is great. Uh, it's great to see people at their absolute best, whatever it's in relation to. But being at your peak at something, especially sport, has something bittersweet about it. And that's because when you're at your peak, the only way is down. It's amazing seeing people performing at their best in sport, but it is only a matter of time before they start to slip. And in these chapters that we read together, many commentators, they would argue that what we see here is King David at his peak. King David at his absolute best. And I I would be inclined to agree with that, especially in chapter 9 with Mephibosheth, the the loving kindness that he shows to him. It's incredible. And so I think what we see here is peak King David. But as with sport, David, he doesn't stay at his peak for long. So far in the book of 2 Samuel, it's been mainly about establishing David as king over the whole of Israel, which has gone uh, really well. God in chapter 7, he's made his covenant with David. He's promised David that his throne will be established forever. And then David's had a number of uh, great victories in battle. We see that in chapter 8. And it's kind of been this upward curve in the kingship of David. And here we hit his peak. The books of First and Second Samuel, uh, they have some kind of summary statements throughout which the author uses to show us that we're entering into a new section. And so at the end of chapter 8, if you've got your Bible, you'll see there that we have a, a summary statement. And so it tells us that chapter 9 is the beginning of a, a new section, a new unit, which runs up to chapter 20. And so the previous section has really um, outlined, in a sense, the rise of King David. And this section that we've, we're in the very beginning of here this morning, which runs to chapter 20, is really where we see the fall of King David. It's when things start to go wrong for him. And the fact that this section begins with David at his absolute best, I think is because these two chapters are to be essentially the backdrop that we would then read the rest of Second Samuel against. When we keep Pete David in mind as you read through that section, it, it hits all the harder where we see that great fall from grace throughout this section. We see it if you look on to chapter 11 where it begins, of course, with the um, episode with Bathsheba. Um, this morning we're going to just primarily focus on chapter 9. hope that was helpful to have a kind of rough idea of what's going on and where we're at in this book. 
We're going to look at chapter 9 mainly together. You might think it's strange that we read 9 and 10 together. They, they seem quite different as we read them, and their connection is probably not that obvious, but uh, we'll come to that uh, a little later in our time together. We're going to look at chapter 9 uh, under three headings. We're going to move quite quickly through these three headings, and so we can then go back through and think about where we ourselves today fit into this uh, passage, into this story. We're going to think about, firstly, uh, the promise, and then the person, and then the provision. The promise, person, and the provision. So firstly, the promise that King David wants to keep. For us to properly understand this passage, it's important just to make sure we're all aware of one Hebrew word. Most of us probably know it or have heard of it, but the word is chesed. Uh, You could argue that it's the most important word in the Old Testament. Uh, The trouble with it is that it's difficult to helpfully and accurately translate. In chapter 9, three times it's translated as kindness. And in chapter 10, in verse 2, twice they translate it as loyally. And this is really the word that connects these two chapters. In both chapters, King David, he desires to show chesed. Other places, it may be translated as loving kindness, steadfast love. It's a love like no other. Dale Ralph Davis, the commentator, he says, chesed is the devoted love within a covenant Love that is willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record. It's a love that is committed, a love that is concerned with the other party. Love that's not earned or deserved. And so David here, he desires to show this love to a descendant of Saul. Read in verse 1. Says, is there anyone, is, is there still anyone left of the household of Saul that I may show him kindness, chesed, for Jonathan's sake? It's clear that he wants to show kindness because of Jonathan. And Jonathan was, he was a great friend of David's, but he was also Saul's son, who was the king before David. And Jonathan, he risked his life in order to protect David. Jonathan gave up his own right to be king because he recognized that David was God's anointed king, God's chosen king. And in so doing, David himself, he promised Jonathan that he will not cut off his love from Jonathan's house. That's in 1 Samuel 20. And this here that we read in chapter and 2 Samuel 9 is David being faithful to the promise that he's made to his dear friend. David wants to keep his promise. The promise that he made with Jonathan, it wasn't a public promise. It was a promise made in private between two good friends. That means that no one really knew about the promise. 
And so David could quite easily have just pretended that it, that it never happened. Or he could have soothed his conscience by saying to himself, well, do you know, it was, it was like 15 years ago, maybe more. Jonathan's dead. I, I treated him with kindness. I've really fulfilled all that, that I need to do. But David doesn't do that. David, he wants to be faithful. He wants to keep the promise that he made. Now to further put this promise into context, we need to be aware that of what was the norm in David's day. When a new regime or a new dynasty came to power, it was standard practice that all those who were attached or associated with the previous dynasty, they would be killed. The new king, he, he had to stamp his authority. He had to ensure that there would be no uprising from others who believed that they had a genuine claim to the throne. And so in this instance, anyone who was a descendant of the house of Saul, they had a valid claim to the throne. And this means that the expectation of David is that he would kill all those of the house of Saul. And this, I mean, it sounds really cruel, but back then it wouldn't have been viewed as cruel at all. It was just standard practice. We even see it happening in the book of Kings. And so David, keeping this promise, this covenant with his friend Jonathan, it meant he had to go against the grain. And in fact, David, he goes way beyond just keeping his promise. To keep his promise, it was merely just to not murder those of the house of Saul. But instead of just being a promise keeper, he wants to show chesed. That's his desire. He wants to go above and beyond. And so we have the promise that David wants to keep. And secondly, the person that David wants to show chesed to, which is, of course, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of David's friend, Jonathan, the grandson of the former King Saul. And the writer, he is absolutely desperate to make clear to us as, as readers that Mephibosheth was crippled in both of his feet. We read in verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. The last words of the chapter again we read, he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth, he, he could not walk. This meant that he was completely dependent upon others. There'd be very little he was able to do for himself. He certainly could not have provided for himself. And he would have been looked down on by so many. Uh, he would more than likely have been ashamed. Uh, he was really a prince who was a cripple, a prince who depended solely on others. And in those days, uh, those things were things that were 
uh, looked down upon by others. Mephibosheth, and uh, feeling his shame, uh, I think is really made clear to us actually by his name, the name Mephibosheth. It means from the mouth of shame. Uh, the place that he had gone to live, Lodabar, that could be translated as no word or no thing. One translator says it could essentially be translated as nothingville, the place of nothing, where the man who was called mouth of shame had gone to live in someone else's home. The author, he's going to extreme lengths to ensure that we are in absolutely no doubt about how Mephibosheth was viewed and indeed how Mephibosheth viewed himself. See in verse 8, he calls himself a dead dog. And on top of all of this, because the person of Mephibosheth is the grandson of the former king, Saul, purely by blood, that makes him an enemy of the new dynasty, an enemy of King David. Mephibosheth, like everyone in those days, he knew that from David's point of view, the sensible thing to do was to kill him. And so when Mephibosheth received the call that came from King David, when he was called from the place of nothing to come to the king, he almost certainly would have expected to be executed. And likely all those who knew Mephibosheth, they would have just assumed that he was journeying to certain death helpless, unable to do anything about it. <clears throat> His name is repeated, Mephibosheth, from the mouth of shame. Lodabar, where he lived, is repeated, the place of nothing. His lineage is repeated, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. He is an enemy of this new dynasty, an enemy of King David. And that takes us into the third thing, here, the promise, the person, and thirdly, the provision that King David makes. With all that in mind, in regard to the person of Mephibosheth, he then comes and he arrives into the presence of King David. And then we read in verse 6, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, he came to David and fell on his face and paid homage to him. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. In this verse, knowing all that we know about the person of Mephibosheth, about the common practice by the new dynasty to any survivors of the old dynasty, I think we can almost hear Mephibosheth's voice shaking as he comes before King David. He must have been 
terrified. Perhaps he was hoping that David might at least make his execution swift because realistically, that was the best that he could hope for. And so, with all of that in mind, let me read verse 7 and, and let us be struck by the kindness of King David. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. I will show you chesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. That is chesed. That is loving kindness that is not earned, that is not deserved. And in his provision, King David gives so lavishly. And there's three key things about what he provides that I just want to highlight. David takes Mephibosheth and he tells him not to fear. He promises him, firstly, protection. He knows how he should be treated. He knows what should happen to him. He knows he's a member of the, the rival regime. And Mephibosheth, he knows it too. He knows he should be executed. But David does the exact opposite. He will not be executed, but he will be protected because of covenant love, because of the loving kindness that David desires to show, to lavish upon him. He'll be protected. And in his provision, secondly, he'll benefit from restoration coming from the place of nothing being put up by Machir, the son of Amuel, he's now given all that belonged to King Saul. David says in verse 7, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And along with this, David says to Ziba in verse 9 and 10 that all which belonged to Ziba's master, Saul, now belongs to Mephibosheth whom Ziba and his sons will now serve. They will tend the land and they will bring in the produce for Mephibosheth. Protection, restoration, and the third provision is a title. He provides Mephibosheth with a title. The grandson of the previous king, an heir to the previous dynasty, an enemy of King David. He is not treated as an enemy, but what is he given instead? He's given the title of son of the king. He is welcomed into King David's family, not as an enemy, not even as a servant, which would have been a show of great, great kindness. But instead, David goes above and beyond and he gives him the title of a son. 
not just a title, he treats him exactly as though he was his son. The end of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, he ate always at the king's table from nothing, from nowhere, from being worthless in the eyes of the world, from certain death to now eating always at the king's table. Always. Incredible show of grace by King David. An incredible show of chesed love. I just want to take a moment to think about that table. The king's table. David's table. And some of the people that would have been sat around that table. We know many of who they would be, but let me mention just a couple. Of course, King David himself would have been there. King David's son, Absalom, who we read of in 2 Samuel 14, 25. The description there is, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no blemish in him. Tamar, the Bible tells us, was beautiful. She was there. Solomon would have been there, famous for his incredible wisdom. There would have been others at the table And alongside all of these people who are given such esteemed descriptions in the Bible was Mephibosheth. And each day, Mephibosheth, who was lame, who was unable to walk, would surely have been picked up and carried to the table to eat with the king. What must he have thought every day as he looked around that table, as he saw those whom he ate with? Surely it was, why am I here? Why me? The only answer that Mephibosheth could give to that question was that it was because of the loving kindness of the king. It was because the king said that he could eat at the table. Though anyone else would have put him to death, would have had him executed, King David welcomed him to his table and treated them like a son. The promise that David keeps, the person of Mephibosheth and the provision that David makes for him. 
If you're like me, when you read the Old Testament passages like this, then you're always trying to work out where, where do I fit in this passage? Where am I here? And I think this chapter is it's fairly clear. King David is, is, a, is a great signpost pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, to the King of Kings. And we are like Mephibosheth. So we're going to go back through our, our three points briefly and we're going to put ourselves into this story. Promise, person, provision. God has made a promise to us, a promise that he has kept. Right throughout the Bible, God promised that he would send his Messiah to save and to redeem. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God promised straight away that he would send someone to defeat sin and evil, that he would send a serpent crusher. And like David kept his promise here, so God has kept his promise through sending his son, our king, our savior, the Lord Jesus. Aspects of David keeping his promise would have been difficult. And we're reminded of the seriousness of what Jesus went through in order for God to keep his promise. It wasn't an easy promise to keep. I think of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus knew the road that was set before him. He knew the anguish of the cross that awaited him. He knew the pain of being separated from his father that was going to come. We read of that account in Mark 14. And Jesus says that he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He prayed that if it be possible that the hour might pass from him. He prayed saying, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. We'll never know what it was like for Jesus that night, knowing what was coming. But despite knowing the road that was set before him, despite knowing what was coming. He chose to walk that road in order that God's promise throughout God's word would be kept as promise of sending a savior in order that we would see the chesed love of God displayed in all of its fullness when we see Jesus hanging on the cross for broken sinners such as ourselves. God's promise that he kept. Secondly, the the person that God wants to show chesed love towards. Mephibosheth was crippled. He was unable to fend for himself. He was helpless. He was powerless. He was an enemy of the king. He was essentially deserving of death because he was of the house of Saul. Does that kind of description of someone, does it remind us of of anything? We are the Lord's Mephibosheth. We stand crippled by our sin before a holy God. We're helpless like Mephibosheth. We're powerless. We cannot do anything about the sinful state that we're in. We're deserving of death, of eternal separation 
from the living God because we, by nature, are his enemies. Romans 5 verse 6, we read what we're like. While we were still weak. In verse 8, while we were still sinners. And then verse 10, while we were enemies. That is who we are before God. And yet God's desire is to show us chesed love. The promise, the person, and the provision that God has made for his weak, sinful enemies. Through keeping his promise to send his Messiah, to send the Savior of the world, he has made an unbelievable provision for us. And even more incredible, far more incredible provision than what David made for Mephibosheth. His provision that we've read of in 2 Samuel 9, that was simply pointing forward, giving us a picture of something greater that was to come. And through King Jesus, we now enjoy protection, restoration, and we are given a title. Through Christ, we're no longer enemies who will face God's wrath and judgment, but we're protected from it. We're given the promise that will not face what we deserve, that he'll protect us from his wrath and judgment because Christ has bore it for us. And he also promises that he'll protect our faith. Once he saves us, we are saved indeed. No man can change that. He'll not just protect us from the wrath to come, but he'll protect what he's given us. Once we're in the grip of the good shepherd, the Bible tells us we will never be released from that grip. We enjoy restoration. That is, we are restored to how things should be. Our relationship with the living God, it's restored. Christ has bought us back. He's paid the price for us and we can now live in a relationship with God. Looking forward to that great hope of being in God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth. And we're given a title. We're now called sons and daughters of the king. And we are treated exactly like a son of the king. When I, when I read Second uh, Samuel 9, I often wonder if when David looked at Mephibosheth, the son of his dear friend Jonathan, I wonder if he could see something of his friend Jonathan in Mephibosheth. So, of course, speculation, and we'll never know that for certain. But what isn't speculation is that when the living God looks upon us who have placed our trust in Christ, he no longer sees his enemies. He no longer sees us as sinners who can't come to his presence. But he looks upon us and he sees us as though we were his son, the Lord Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus, he does not just take our sin away and deal with it. 
but he takes it and he replaces it with his very own righteousness. At the cross, we see the loving kindness of the king towards sinners. God holds out his chesed love and he calls on us to accept it, to respond in repentance and in faith. I read both chapters 9 and 10 and that's because in both chapters, David at his best, at his peak, he offers to show Hesed first to Mephibosheth and then in chapter 10 to Hanan. And Hanan is he's given bad counsel. He's led to interpret David's desire to show Hesed as him making preparations to overthrow the city. And so Hanan, he, he throws David's loving kindness back in his face and he humiliates his servants and the end result of this rejection of chesed love is the death of many many people and now had Hanan not rejected the loving kindness displayed by David and many would have lived. And I think one of the big points, if not the big point that these two chapters make together is that how God's chesed love is responded to is a matter of life and death. For each person in this life who does not accept the loving kindness of God which is demonstrated through the life, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they will face death. They will face an eternity apart from God paying the price for their sinfulness. They'll be separated from God. And yet God in his great loving kindness does not want that to happen. He desires, the Bible tells us, he desires all men to be saved. And he holds that out to us all, calls on us to believe and to repent. He is inviting us to come to his table, to feast. All that Mephibosheth could say if anyone ever asked him on what account he feasted at the, at the king's table was that the king said he could come. There were no other grounds to be there other than the king said he could come. And so for us as God's people, when, when we come to remember the death of Christ, when we come to drink the wine and eat the bread, on what account? Do we do that? Do we deserve to do that? Have we earned the right to do that? No, of course not. We come to that table only because the King of Kings, only because King Jesus said we could come. And it'll be the very same when we're welcomed into his kingdom. 
So there's a talk given by Alistair Begg. It's quite popular. Maybe heard it or seen clips of it. But during the talk, Alistair Begg, he speaks about the thief on the cross. The one whom Jesus told would be in paradise that day with him. And Alistair Begg says, if that man was asked why he was there, if he was asked why he was in paradise, a sinner who was put to death for his crimes, if he was asked why he is in heaven, Alistair Begg says that all that that man could reply saying to that question was that the man on the middle cross said, I could come. And what account do dead dogs such as ourselves enter into his kingdom forever? Well, it's because of who he is. It's because of what he has done. And it's because he said we could come. Let's pray together.